Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into these special topics. And when I say special topic, what I mean there is to essentially say (laughs) this is an evening that is devoted to meeting you where you are at. Whatever question you might have, that is the question I want to answer. And in saying that, Over recent months, I have uh, received questions, and really, I have continued to receive questions about infallibility. And while I touched upon this question before, I want to re-engage the question of infallibility, looking at it from maybe more of a bird's eye view, if you will, okay? So, what is the gift of infallibility? What does the church mean to say when she's talking about infallibility. Well, let me first say this. The dogma of infallibility was formally proclaimed at the First Vatican Council in 1870. Now, there are several requirements for a dogmatic papal infallible pronouncement. The first being the pronouncement must be made by the lawful successor to Peter. Okay, so from the chair of Peter. Second, the subject matter must be in the area of faith and morals. And third, and really this goes back to the first, the Pope must be speaking from the seat and office of Peter. So in this way, he must be specifically intending to proclaim a doctrine binding the entire church to its assent. So essentially, papal infallibility is when the Pope speaks uh, ex cathedra, which is to say, from the chair of his office, explicating an article of divine revelation under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in full possession of his role as Peter's successor. Uh, by using the phrase papal infallibility, we have to be clear on something. The church does not mean papal impeccability, <laughs> okay? whereby the Pope cannot sin, as if the Pope might be tapping into some magical incantation upon becoming Pope. No. My dear friends, infallibility is not the absence of sin, because it is not a charism attached to an individual. And that, I think, is quintessential to our reflection this evening, that it is not a charism attached to an individual, rather in office. And of course, in this case, what we're talking about here is the office of Peter. Now, the infallibility of the office is not a doctrine that just suddenly appeared in church teaching. Rather, it is a doctrine that is rooted in Scripture, as all teachings of the church are founded upon the Bible. Now, that being said, it is over time that infallibility has been more clearly understood and here, I would have to say, lies the importance of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, 
and the role of sacred tradition. And what do we read in Paul's letter to the Church of Thessalonica? And I emphasize the Church of Thessalonica because we have to remember, when Paul, in the corpus of all his letters, when we say letter to the Ephesians, letter to the Corinthians, letter to the Thessalonians, these are letters he is writing to the particular churches in that region. <laughs> it's just not some random body of people. Okay, so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, we read, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you are taught by us, either by word of mouth, sacred tradition, right, or by letter, sacred scripture. So by word of mouth, you have tradition, and by letter, you have sacred scripture. We have to remember something, my friends, that this letter, which, oh, by the way, was one of the first letters, if not the first letter written in the New Testament. We have this dated roughly 5153 AD. Well, this is the second letter to the Church of Thessalonica. The first letter was written in roughly 5153 AD. You have 20 years of a salvific sacramental church, right? But no Bible. So this is what we intend to mean when we talk about sacred tradition, holding on to the, to the traditions, which, as Paul says here, taught by us by word of mouth, right? So I'm hitting the pause button now because I do think it's important to be mindful as we develop this discussion this evening of sacred tradition. So in reflecting upon 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, what are we made to see? Well, just as the Holy Spirit inspired the evangelists, so does the Holy Spirit inspire the leaders of the church to hand on the faith from one generation to the next, right? What, what does Jesus say? Lo, I will be with you always. Now, where do we find infallibility in seed form in the Bible? Well, in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, what do we read Jesus saying to Peter? Feed my sheep. In Luke chapter 22, verse 32, we read Jesus encouraging Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, that you may strengthen your brethren. In Acts chapter 15, we see Peter standing up and asserting his authority. And there are many others, but maybe the most important verse, the most important passage can be found in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, verses 15 to 20, we read, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, I want to engage in more depth this passage from Matthew 16 uh, verses 15 to 20, and, and even more specifically, verse 18, in light of the Old Testament, with 
the whole topic of papal infallibility in our rearview mirror. No doubt, with Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus, Jesus' establishment of his church on this rock, we reach a high point in Matthew's gospel. Certainly, we can say that Matthew presumes we understand the Old Testament, right? Indeed, the key concepts and images in these verses, the Messiah, the Son of God, rock building, gates of Hades, keys and kingdom, binding, loosening, are all drawn from the Old Testament tradition surrounding the Davidic kingdom. We have to remember something else, my friends, that the whole of the Gospel of Matthew has two overarching themes. First, that Jesus is the son of David, right? What is the opening verse to the Gospel of Matthew? Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Jesus is is called Prince of Peace, King of Kings. No, Son of David. There's an emphasis on Jesus Christ being the Son of David. What else? Well, the other theme is the focus and the emphasis on Peter himself. So we have to be thinking about this, right? Certainly, Matthew is writing to a Palestinian Christian Jewish audience who was steeped in the Old Testament. So what Matthew was doing is using things that are familiar to his audience so as to explain things that are unfamiliar to his audience, which is to say, essentially, Christ has come to fulfill the great promise. All right? Now, with Peter's confession, Jesus acknowledges for the first time he is the Davidic Messiah, huh? He blesses Peter, saying that, This insight into his messianic divinity must have been revealed to him by who but the Heavenly Father. Then Jesus gives Peter a new name. Going back to Matthew 4, verse 18, his name was what but Simon. You see here, a new God-given role in salvation history has been given. All throughout sacred history, all throughout salvation history, what do we see? Where there is a name change, there is an elevation of status. Abram to Abraham, Saul to Paul, so on and so forth, okay? And what is the name change? Well, Peter, rock. And what does Jesus say? Upon this rock, I will build my church. A church, my church. And the final blessings that Jesus gives to Peter are what? But the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the powers to bind and loose. My friends, In the Davidic kingdom, the king appointed a prime minister to handle the the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. He was uh, variously called the royal vizier, the master of the palace, the, the superintendent, the prime minister, if you will. He was and is considered to be what but a father to the inhabitants of the kingdom. Uh, We see this explicitly in the case of King Hilkiah replacing Shebna with Eliakim. In Isaiah chapter 22, uh, verses 20 to 22, we read, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your girdle on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be, and listen to what we read here in Isaiah, a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. 
He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. My dear friends, in Matthew 16, Peter is here (laughs) being appointed prime minister of the restored kingdom of David, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaimed the church he called his own. The keys are what? But a symbol of the king's power, authority, and control. The reference to binding and loosening is what? Well, if you're reading this in the first century, a familiar allusion to the powers of the prime minister, to the rabbis, to declare what is permitted and what is not permitted. Brothers and sisters, as prime minister of the kingdom of heaven and holding the chair established by Christ, Peter possesses the ultimate teaching authority. Not by what Peter did, but by what God inspired and ultimately Jesus proclaimed. Hmm? Peter has the ability to declare what will be allowed and what will not be allowed. This is the shutting and opening. This is the binding and loosening. But as I say this, I do want to highlight something else here. You know, as we're talking about this, We're talking about the role of the Pope, right? What does the word Pope mean but Papa Father? What did we just read? (laughs) That the Prime Minister will be a father, a Papa, a Pope to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, my friends, the Prime Minister is just not some institutional head, but the father to the inhabitants of uh, the new Jerusalem. As Peter Kraft once stated, you've heard me quote him a lot, (laughs) The church should not be mistaken for a political body because it is an organic body and no organic body can be a democracy. It must have a head. Christ gave the church a head. Hmm. Maybe we can put it more simply. The New Testament shows the apostles setting up after their master's instructions a visible organization which is a family and Every Christian writer, my friends, in the early centuries, in fact, nearly all Christians until the Reformation, fully recognized that Christ set up an ongoing organizational family, for the church is the family of God. Now, I think what's important here is, as it relates to the visible nature of this family, this church, this mystical body of Christ, we have some important words that come to us from Ignatius one of those early church fathers, Bishop of Antioch, in 105 AD, in an early 2nd century letter to the church in Smyrna, he wrote, Wherever the bishop appears, let the people be there, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Oh, by the way, that's the first time we have the word Catholic used. Uh, 105 A.D. in this letter to, uh, in Ignatius's letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, the Greek word for Catholic is katholike. It simply means universal. What is universal? Well, the new covenant that Christ came to establish, the new covenant in baptism and the Eucharist. So, what we want to emphasize here is where Jesus Christ is, so is the church. If Christ did set up such an organization as we speak to it. He must have provided for its continuation, for its 
we could say easy identification. That is, it had to be visible so it could be found, right? (laughs) And since he would be gone from earth, he would have to set up some method by which it could preserve, that is, the church, his teaching intact. If, as Christ promised, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, then it must be protected from fundamentally falling into air and, and thus away from Christ. So it must prove itself to be a perfectly steady guide in matters pertaining to salvation. So since Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, this means that his church can never pass out of existence. Huh? Thus the church cannot teach heresy, meaning that anything it solemnly defines for the faithful to believe must be true. Insofar, insofar as what? It bears witness to the revelation of Jesus Christ in sacred scripture. What does Paul say in his first letter to Timothy? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. If the church is the foundation of religious truth in the world, then it is God's own spokesman. As Christ told his apostles, Luke chapter 10, verse 16, He who hears you hears me. And he who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. (laughs) Luke chapter 10, verse 16. You know, the Catholic Church, for all its corruption, has done something that no other organization, or for that matter, civilization, has ever done. Withstood the test of time. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Mayans the dynasties of China, so on and so forth. The church has something altogether unique. God's promise. I will be with you always. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20, Christ instructs his apostles, the church, to preach everything he taught. And he promised the protection of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit as he says to the apostles, will guide you into all the truth. That mandate and that promise guarantees the church will never fall away from his teachings, even if it looks like it has. And by that I mean, again, if you're to go back in history, yeah, there are times where popes have shown a great moral laxity and have even been confusing in how they expound on the faith as it relates to the core elements of the faith, the core doctrines of the faith. No, she cannot fall into air. As Christians began to more clearly understand the teaching authority of the church and the primacy of the Pope, as time passed, clearly Christians developed a clear understanding of the Pope's infallibility, not to be confused with an individual's impeccability. All that being said, infallibility is in play only when some doctrine has been called into question, and this is another really quintessential point. Most doctrines have never been doubted by the large majority of Catholics. In fact, papal infallibility has only been exercised on two separate occasions, and that is, uh, was on Mary's Immaculate Conception and her bodily assumption into heaven. 
neither of which were earth-shattering to Roman Catholics at the time because these beliefs had been nurtured through devotion, prayer, and certainly local teaching for centuries before becoming official papal teaching. And oh, by the way, yeah, the Immaculate Conception in light of Luke one twenty-eight and the Assumption in light of Revelation 12 are both rooted in sacred scripture. Now, what else here? Many of my conversations I have been in highlight popes that have lived scandalous lives. And I get it. I really do. But this point brings us back to the topic of infallibility versus impeccability. There is no guarantee that popes won't sin or give bad example. The guarantee is that the church will always bear witness to the truth and revelation and mandate of Jesus Christ. What's more, other people wonder how infallibility could exist if some popes disagreed with others. And I think this to be a valid observation. But in the end, (laughs) this is neither here nor there. Why? Well, because infallibility applies only, once again, to solemn official teachings on faith and morals, not to disciplinary decisions or even to unofficial comments on faith and morals, or for that matter, some pastoral document on how to handle a situation. That's not what we're talking about here. This is uh, widely important because, my friends, a pope's private theological opinion is not infallible. Only what he solemnly defines is considered to be infallible, infallible teaching. I know there are many of you out there that believe infallibility means that popes are given some special grace that allows them to teach positively whatever truths need to be known. But that also is incorrect. What infallibility does do is prevent a pope from solemnly and formally teaching as truth something that is, in fact, error. Okay? Here, I, I suppose you might be asking, what about Peter's conduct at Antioch? This is a question that, that came up, where he refused to eat with Gentile Christians in order to, <clears throat> excuse me, not to offend certain Jews from uh, Palestine. We read this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. For this, of course, we know Paul rebuked him. Did this demonstrate papal infallibility was non-existent? Not at all. Peter's actions had to do with matters of discipline. Here is an illustration of the point I was just making. Discipline, right? Not with the issue of faith and or morals. Furthermore, the problem was Peter's actions, not his teaching. Paul acknowledged that Peter very well knew the correct teaching, but it was necessary to correct. All right, and by the grace of God go you, by the grace of God go I. By the grace of God, go all of us as we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to reflect into the beauty of your word, the richness of your word, and how the Holy Spirit (laughs) continues to reveal to us the ways in which God desires us to draw closer to him, that by virtue of the transmission of divine revelation, sacred scripture, and sacred tradition, we have been given this beautiful deposit of faith from which to better discern just not who we are and where we are going, 
but Heavenly Father, what you are calling us to in each and every moment. And as always, we turn to our mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. God bless you.